tonight our text is from the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1. We are beginning a series of messages on the Acts of the Apostles. This will not be an exhaustive verse-by-verse study through the book. We have done that in our adults' Sabbath class uh, not too long ago. For this present series, we'll be doing a study on the theme, The Church Marches On. We'll concentrate on how the gospel of Christ spread from Jerusalem to Asia to Europe and beyond. We'll examine the ministry of the apostles and their associates. We will observe the persecutions they suffered. We'll marvel at the powerful work of the Holy Spirit everywhere the gospel touches. We will pause to consider the conversions of men and women. We will peek into their lives Whenever a window is open for us to look through, we will rejoice in the sure and steady march of the Church of Christ through the ages. But this evening, under the sub-theme, the beginning of the restoration of Israel, we want to consider the first 11 verses of this book. In a sense, this is the introduction of the book. It expands on what is recorded in the last few verses of the Gospel of Luke. Acts is, of course, also written by Dr. Luke. In fact, it is also addressed to Theophilus, and it opens with a reference to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke begins with the conception and birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says a little about his childhood before moving quickly to his baptism and his ministry in and around the land of Israel. The account wraps with the Lord's betrayer, arrest, crucifixion, death, and resurrection. Then, in the last few verses, his ascension to heaven is briefly mentioned. Our text in Acts goes back a little to say something of what happened during those 40 days between the Lord's resurrection and his ascension. In particular, we are given a summary of what happened before the Lord ascends back to heaven. There are three things we must especially focus our attention on uh, from this summary. This evening, we begin with a confirmation of the promise of the Spirit. What did the Lord Jesus do during those 40 days after his resurrection, before his ascension? Well, the answer is found in verse 3. He appears before his disciples. He gave convincing proofs that he has truly risen from the dead, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. But most significantly, he instructed them about the promise of the Holy Spirit. He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. Verse 4. What is This promise, well, it is the promise of the Holy Spirit. We started this promise when we considered John 14 to 16. The Lord Jesus had promised that when he ascended to the Father, he would send forth another comforter to take his place, to dwell within the hearts of his people, to teach them all things pertaining to their relationship with God. Remarkably, in verse 5, the Lord speaks of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as a baptism of the Spirit. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, 
not many days hence. Verse 5. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, theologically, we understand that baptism of the Holy Spirit is really regeneration or the new birth. That's why the Apostle Paul speaks of the washing of regeneration in Titus 3, 5. Water baptism is the sacrament that is tied to spirit baptism. Why then does the Lord Jesus tell the disciples that they must be baptized or they will be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence? Well, he's referring to what will happen at Pentecost, which uh, we will consider in Acts chapter 2. But aren't the disciples already baptized by the Holy Spirit? If they were not baptized by the Spirit or born again, they could not have faith. Because faith is the gift of God that is given at the new birth. The Lord Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again. But he's not born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. So faith comes about through regeneration. So why does the Lord Jesus suggest that uh, their baptism to his disciples, that their baptism by the Spirit is still future? Well, the answer lies in the fact that regeneration is a benefit of the new covenant flowing from the resurrection of the Lord. And that Pentecost is designated as the day to unveil that. It is like the privileges that officer cadets in the army have even before their commissioning parade. I remember when I was in the officer's cadet school, uh, towards the end we were addressed as sirs by the NCOs. Uh, even though we were not yet officers, we were still wearing white bars. Well, we would technically only be, become officers after the commissioning parade, but we already had some of the privileges of being officers before that. Now, regeneration is like having the privilege of an officer before uh, uh, and after his commissioning. And Pentecost is like the commissioning parade, where he officially, as it were, gets his bath. But of course, this is just an illustration. For faithful Old Covenant saints were truly regenerated. We must not think that they were not actually regenerated, like in the case of the, the officers in OCS. Uh, they were not commissioned. They were not really officers. But in the case of uh, the saints in the Old Covenant, they were truly regenerated, uh, though they did not enjoy the full privileges of it. If you like, they received, as it were, a pre-release beta version of regeneration. You know what a beta version is, don't you? Uh, this is a term used by software developers. Uh, so if a company develops a software product, they will set a date to release it to the general public. But before that date, they will often release what is often known as the beta version to a select group of people, usually for testing and for feedback. This beta version will usually have most of the major features of the final products, but not everything is enabled. Now, regeneration under the Old Covenant is like a beta version of regeneration that would be launched on the day of Pentecost. The same Holy Spirit indwelt Old Covenant saints as he who indwells us 
under the new covenant. But under the old covenant, comparatively, very few receive him. And those who receive him did not enjoy the blessing of regeneration to the same degree as new covenant saints. Old covenant saints, for example, did not enjoy the same uh, theological clarity that post-Pentecost saints enjoy. Likewise, they did not have the same degree of assurance of forgiveness and sense of God's love as we do. Thus, the Lord told his disciples to wait for that day. It would be a day of great spiritual blessing. Their eyes will be open as never before. Many more people will be converted from that day onwards. The sense of assurance of God's forgiveness and love that they would receive would be something unprecedented in the history of redemption. What's more, that day, when the Spirit is poured out for the first time, uh, will be marked with supernatural gifts that will support the, church, the, the witness of the church until the completion of the New Testament canon. Today, the Spirit has been poured out. We live post-Pentecost. So it may be a little hard for us to appreciate the significance of the Lord's confirmation to his disciples that the Holy Spirit would be poured down and, and that they should wait for it. But remember that the event was a watershed moment in the history of redemption. The disciples had never experienced anything like that before. It was an event that would change the shape and direction of the kingdom of Christ completely. In a sense, we are what we are and where we are today because the disciples took heed to the Lord's word to wait for the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem before attempting to do great things for the Lord. Now here's a lesson for us, isn't there? It is good to be zealous for the Lord's kingdom, but it is very important that we learn to wait upon the Lord for Him to equip us to do the work that He has called us to do. Therefore, let us not rush into any endeavours for the Lord without seeking Him much in prayer and especially without seeking the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So that's the first lesson. But now secondly, consider the clarification regarding the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of God. Well, in verse 4, we are told that the disciples assembled together with the Lord. Now, in verse 6, we are told that they are come together. Is, is this referring to the same occasion? Well, we don't know. What we do know is that the disciples asked the Lord a rather curious question. Lord, would I this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Verse 6. What do they mean? Well, most likely, despite being taught by the Lord Jesus for the past three years, the disciples were still entertaining the common opinion of the Jews at that time that the, that the Messiah would reign as a Davidic king in Jerusalem. Therefore, since, Christ, since Israel was under the dominion of the Romans, he, the Messiah, would free them from bondage and restore the kingdom to them. 
In other words, they were thinking that Christ would restore sovereignty and political power to Israel as a nation. Were they right? Well, the Lord Jesus does not correct them, directly at least. Instead, he admonishes them. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. Verse 7. As a result of our Lord's uh, response, some Christians insist that the, that the disciples must be correct, that it is God's plan that Christ should serve as a political king in Israel. So they say that though Christ did not restore the kingdom to Israel at that time, he will do so in a future date, and that he will rule in Jerusalem for 1,000 years. And during that time, the temple will be raised again, and the sacrifices will be restored, and anyone who is converted will be circumcised. And then after that, there will be a revolt against Christ, and then there will be a final state. Well, that is the thinking of many Christians since 1830. But is that so? Well, comparing scriptures with scriptures, it becomes clear that that view is really a pernicious error. Why do we say so? Well, because other than telling his disciples that it is not for them to know the timing of things, the Lord immediately adds, verse 8, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Okay, you see, why the Lord does not give a detailed reply to his disciples uh, about restoring the kingdom to Israel? Well, he is telling them about a spiritual kingdom, and they are thinking about a political kingdom. We can imagine the Lord's exasperation at the slowness of their heart. But he knows that he does not need to explain everything in detail. For the Spirit will soon make everything clear. That clarity uh, will dawn upon them in the various stages, beginning with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And things will get clearer and clearer as they begin to spread the gospel, uh, to, as they spread out and preach the gospel uh, in the power of the Spirit. And they would do so in Jerusalem, and then the whole Judea, and then Samaria, and then outwards, unto the uttermost parts of the world. It will become clearer and clearer as more and more people are converted, not only amongst the Jews, but also the Samaritans, and then the Gentiles, the pagans. In fact, in a short while, it will become clear that the kingdom of Christ will have more Gentile converts than Hebrew converts. This is so much so that by the time we come to Acts 15, it will have become nearly impossible for the apostles and the church in Jerusalem to fail to understand how Christ is restoring the kingdom of Israel. He is restoring not a political kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. The citizens of the kingdom are not Israelites, but people from all over the world, Jews and Gentiles. Now let's take a look at James' concluding words to the assembly 
in Jerusalem, Acts 15. Acts 15 and verse 13. This is what uh, uh, James, the moderator of that assembly, says. Verse 13, after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to disagree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of man might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Now, James is clearly referring to the prophecy of Amos in Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. And that prophecy concerns the restoration of the tabernacle of David or the throne of David over Jerusalem. Now, you see, don't you, that James has come to see that that prophecy is about the Gentiles being converted to Christ. It's not about the erection of uh, the, the, the palace again and Christ sitting in Jerusalem and ruling in Jerusalem and so on. He saw that with the conversion of the Gentiles, the Israel of God that has been scattered is being gathered. Jezreel, the scattering of the seed, is also the planting of the seed, according to the prophecy of Hosea. And so, James essentially declares that the kingdom of David is being restored. The kingdom of Israel is being restored through the conversion of sinners, especially Gentiles. God's plan for the restoration of the kingdom of Israel is not a political plan. It is a plan to rebuild the Israel of God by gathering the elect from the four corners of the world to unite them to Christ through the preaching of the gospel of salvation. What an amazing thought, isn't it? While the disciples were thinking about the nation of Israel, the Lord was thinking about us. Of course, he was not only thinking about that small number of us gathered together here this evening, uh, just, at least not just us, He's thinking about his sheep and lambs who will be gathered throughout the world, throughout the ages. What a blessing to have been gathered up in his love according to his plan. What a thrill it is to know that many more are being gathered day by day throughout the world. Oh, that the Lord will use us more in this work of rounding up the sheep and lambs he laid his life down for. But now thirdly, consider the consolation upon the promised return of Christ. Last words are important. The last word of the Lord before he ascended to heaven was his clarification and charge regarding his kingdom. Then as they look on, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight, verse 9. 
We can imagine how they must have felt. It was hard for them to have him leave them the first time when he went to the cross. But that time, everything happened so fast that they had no opportunity to think about it. He was, as it were, yanked away from them. But now the Lord uh, must have prepared them. Uh, he spent 40 days with them. Uh, they must have been prepared for his departure the way that Elisha and the sons of the prophets were prepared for Elijah's departure. Nevertheless, when the moment comes for him to be taken up, their hearts must have been filled with turmoil. They will not see their beloved master again until they see him in glory upon their own death. So they stand there, quietly looking as the Lord ascends, and they continue to stare into the sky even when a cloud receives the Lord out of their sight. And suddenly, two men, or rather angels, stand by them in white apparel. Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven, they ask. Do you notice the ever so mild reproof in their words? Why are you still gazing up to heaven? He's not going to appear again anytime soon. He's gone to glory. And what awaits you shortly will be far more thrilling than what you have experienced hitherto while he was with you. Therefore, don't keep staring into the clouds as if this is the end. But that's not the end. To console and encourage the disciples, the angels add, This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. The Lord Jesus has gone back to heaven. He came to fulfill his covenant promise for the redemption of his people. Now he must return unto his Father, the Ancient of Days, as was prophesied by the prophet Daniel. We read in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, I saw in the night visions, says Daniel, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. Daniel was foreseeing what the Lord would do when he finished his work of redemption and come back unto the Father. But as he was taken by a cloud, so he shall likewise return with clouds, the angels informed the disciples. The Apostle John would later declare in Revelation 1.7-2, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierce him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so. Amen. Our Lord would not return in the lifetime of the apostles. So the angels' word of consolation was not only for them, but rather it is for the whole church down the ages. Christ is coming again in like manner, visibly and bodily. He will come as judge and king. He will vindicate his people. He will put down his and their enemies. Will the Lord return in our lifetime? We don't know. No man knows when he will return. But one thing is sure. He will return. As surely as he ascended to heaven, so sure may we be that he will descend from heaven. 
But what is that certainty to you? Does it mean anything to you? Have you thought about it? Since he may not return in your lifetime, his return would appear to be irrelevant to you. But is it really irrelevant? When Hezekiah was told that the Babylonians would invade Jerusalem and carry away everything that he owed and loved, including his children, he said, God, a good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. And uh, he said, Is it not good if peace and truth be in my days? Oh, what do you think of his response? Do you not think that he's perhaps a little bit too self-centered there? For all his good qualities, there is something not quite right here when he does not seem to be bothered that something bad was going to happen during the days of his children. So likewise, though Christ may not return in our lifetime, it should thrill our hearts that he will return one day and that our children or our children's children or children's children's children, that, that they, they will see him coming down in the clouds. And you know what? Actually, in that day, we'll also be seeing him without the eyes of our flesh. Because those who have gone to the grave first will rise before those who are alive. Shouldn't it thrill your hearts? The Apostle Paul says, The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. What a joy that day will be. That day will mark the end of the suffering and strife of the Church of Christ. It will be a day of vindication for the godly. It will be a day of great celebration. What is that day to you, beloved brethren, young people and children? Will it be a day of fear and trembling as your sin are exposed publicly and you are publicly sentenced before the whole world? Or will it be a day of great rejoicing because your Saviour who shed his blood for you has come back for you? And you have been given the privilege of seeing him with your own eyes. Oh, may it be the letter for every one of us gathered here this evening. What a remarkable chapter, isn't it? A remarkable chapter to open the history of the Acts of the Apostles with. Here is a confirmation of the promise of the Spirit, a clarification regarding the kingdom and a consolation upon the hope of Christ's return. May the Spirit who has been promised fill our hearts with faith, joy and hope that we may believe all that has been revealed in God's word, that we may rejoice that God's plan includes our salvation, that we may live as those who are empowered by the Holy Spirit for righteousness and good works, that we may be motivated by hope that one day, soon, Christ will return upon the clouds before our eyes. Amen.